Thank you for sharing in that time with us. Uh, we really value that. We really value the, the, the chance to spend time together and to, uh, to actually be with one another. Like we really think that worship as embodiment is something that's happening with a group of people and not uh, as much as we can through a screen, right? We, we, we are doing everything we can to keep from that. And, and intermission is really kind of a representation of that, the value that we place on relationship and forming and kind of building relationships rather than just having these very sort of surface level conversations through it all. So it's, it's really valuable to us to be able to do that. So we're grateful that you'll participate in that way with us and for the conversations that are had here. Uh, but we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 15. We're looking at verse 35. And we're going to read through the end of the chapter, so a bit of a chunk. This is what Paul writes. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The word of the Lord. Yeah, that's a long one. That's a big, a big chunk, but it's important. Today we're, we're finishing this series in 1 Corinthians. Next week we'll do a, a Q&A portion where we kind of talk about this together and, and consider maybe the things we didn't get to talk about. Because I'm, I'm sure you've noticed uh, this is our second week in 1 Corinthians 15. Jonathan was talking about the first half last week, and now we're in the, the second half of this passage. And that obviously shows you the way in which we've kind of been skipping around some things. We have skipped entire chapters during this series. We wanted to cover all of it during the course of this summer. And yet, here we are spending two weeks in, in one chapter, and some of you may be kind of wondering, why are we here again? At the simplest level, first and foremost, who doesn't love Easter in August? Is, was my thought. Like, honestly, like, we've already lost one Easter together during this pandemic. We're just making up for lost time. Pastors like Easter. We like to talk about this. And so here we are. 1 Corinthians 15. The other reason, though, uh, if that's not good enough for you, the other reason is that in the course of this letter, chapter 15 is the apex of the whole body of what Paul is saying. This is what he's been moving toward the entire time. This is what he's trying to help us get to. Paul wants you to hear this. It's what he seems to think is the, the problem, the, the, the source of so many other issues within their lives. It's all connected to resurrection. He believes that their denial of the resurrection, their lack of belief in this thing, as he has articulated it, that has created so many other misunderstandings in their lives. It has borne fruit in their lives. It has presented itself as an issue in their lives over and over again. They've misunderstood resurrection and the resurrection of, of Jesus in particular. And that has created all this other misunderstanding in their lives as, as believers and followers of Jesus. And I don't think I have to do a lot of work to convince you guys of that. I don't think any of you would, would question that, like the significance, the foundational nature of resurrection for us as believers. We talk about it regularly. Even the person who shows up once a year on Easter that we love to give a hard time, right? Even that person is going to hear about it. Even if you show up on another Sunday of the year other than Easter, and it's only once during the year you've shown up, you're going to hear about resurrection here. Like we come to the table every Sunday. We're talking about this over and over again. You're familiar with it. You recognize it. And even somebody from the outside coming in for the first time would hear that and see it. But there's still a lot about what we actually believe concerning resurrection that a lot of people don't understand. I think most people in the church understand how central this is. That resurrection is at the heart of everything we do. Yet, what exactly do we believe about resurrection? That's the, the question that Paul is, is dealing with here. There's still all this misunderstanding, and believers still have a lot of questions. Last week, we're in the first half of this passage, and Paul is reminding this little church at Corinth what we believe about Jesus, what happened with Jesus at the grave. 
He's trying to press that on them. That Christ was truly raised from the dead. That this was not some metaphorical thing. It was not merely a, a spiritual resurrection. It was this, this physical, bodily experience. Jesus truly raised from the dead. And from there, he says, if that is true, it means you and I as well will experience this resurrection. Our resurrection, our hope for eternity is tied to the resurrection of Jesus. This is our hope. Resurrection is paramount, right? We come to it again and again, but now Paul is beginning to address those questions we often have about it. What's this even going to look like, right? That's what he's, he's getting at. He begins by saying, some will ask, how? How are the dead raised? And it's important for us to hear that. Paul is trying to deal pastorally with the questions we wrestle with. This isn't Paul speaking to non-believing people in Corinth. This is Paul speaking to the church, right? Even believers are wrestling with these questions. And that's still true. How is this even going to look? What is this supposed to, to kind of like play out as? People still have questions. Paul is addressing that. Like, think about the questions people have. I mean, at, at a funeral, somebody's asking whether they've been in the church for years or not. Like, what? Where are they now? What, what does this even mean, really? Like, it, it, we wrestle with these questions, trying to, to make sense of it. And Paul is doing the same thing. It makes me think of a few weeks ago, I was, I was finishing up the bedtime routine with, with our youngest, uh, our son Max. Uh, and I'm leaving his bedroom, and I'm closing the door. Like, I've gone through everything. We've prayed prayers and sung songs and answered questions and done everything we're supposed to do. And I'm thinking I'm just closing the door. And as I'm closing it, I hear, Dad. And honestly, I answer a little, little frustrated. Yes. You going to die, Dad? In my family, we tend to reserve the most casual conversation for bedtime. Right as you're walking out of the room, that's when this stuff comes up. The dinner table would be great, right? But we can't talk about those sort of profound questions at dinner because we have to fight about eating at dinner. That's what we do. We talk about eating or we fight about whether you're not eating. That's the whole thing that we deal with at dinner. So at bedtime, we ask these questions. And here I am articulating for my son, like, yes, yes, I, I, I am going to die. Where are you going to be, Dad? What's this going to look like, right? He understands heaven is a place. He has a, a rather, like, simple idea of this. But he doesn't, he doesn't understand what Paul is talking about. And here I am trying to articulate it to him. We have these questions, right? And it's not just Max. There are so many other people that are wrestling with these things. And Paul wants to deal with this. Our honest questions. The questions that a, a son or a daughter asks their, their parents. The questions that love asks. We have to deal honestly with them. And that's what Paul is doing. And so like last week, if you think about it, we were looking at the implications of resurrection and what we believe about resurrection for your life right now, how you're living right now. But this week, we're considering the future implications of resurrection, what we believe all of this means for eternity, for heaven, for new creation. That's what Paul is beginning to step into. After last week and what Jonathan was saying, you might come away Recognizing, like if we misunderstand resurrection as they did at Corinth, then we're likely going to miss what God intends for our lives here and now and how we're choosing to live. But the same thing remains true in this passage, right? If we misunderstand resurrection, 
then we're going to miss what God intends for eternity. We miss God's future when we, we lose a grasp on resurrection. This is what, what Paul is trying to help us see. He's connecting these things. This is like the point in the chapter where Paul begins to turn a corner. It was resurrection and, and the fact that you too will be raised from the dead. And now he wants to try to explore the implications of this thing. Not just for my present life. Not just for, for life after death and our conception of an afterlife. It's beyond that. Now we're talking about the implications of resurrection for what we call the eschaton. That's one of those words, if you guys use it in a sentence after church, we'll give you 50 cents. Like, if you guys drop that one in there, like, and at work, maybe you guys should just drop a phrase, you know, like, the eschatological implications, right? People are going to think you got like 10 points more on your IQ than you really do. Just drop those sort of phrases. It helps, right? Uh, it might also turn people off, so maybe be cautious about it. He's talking about the implications of resurrection for the, the eschaton, for eternity, for the end, these last days conversations. He, he wants to talk about resurrection and how it impacts all of that. And that's what he's getting at in, in verse 51. He says, we will all be changed in a flash, right? It's important for us not to miss that. He's, he's, he's trying to, to get at implications for eternity. But let's begin, before we ever go there, let's just deal with their question. Let's just deal with the question, how? They say, how can someone be raised? This is, is what they're dealing at. And, and when they ask how, they aren't asking in this sort of scientific or empirical sense. That's not how they're asking here. They're asking in a different sort of way. The ancient mind doesn't function like ours. We would ask the question, how, in terms of, how is this possible scientifically? How can a dead person become undead? How does such a thing work? How does this play out at a scientific level? But the, the ancient mind has no issue with the miraculous. That's not what they mean when they ask how. That's what, what we would be asking. And Paul is doing something different here when he poses this question that they might ask. They have actually come to expect the miraculous as the rule rather than the exception. This is the way they think. And if you read 1 Corinthians, you see that. Think about what we talked about a, a couple weeks ago. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, he's laying out the idea of spiritual gifts. People at Corinth believe that the Spirit of God speaks heavenly, angelic languages through them. That they're capable of that sort of thing. Not only that, that Someone in the church would be able to interpret such a thing so that they could understand it, so that the whole church could understand it. They believe people are gifted not just to preach or teach or serve in the church. They believe people are gifted to heal sickness and disease. Right? They don't have an issue with the miraculous. When they ask how is the resurrection possible, they're not asking it in the same way we are. They don't have the same, same hang-ups as we do. Resurrection doesn't sound preposterous to them, like it does to our modern sensibilities. It's different for them. They're asking something more like, what is this even going to look like? How is this all going to play out? That's what they are, are getting at here. This is the, the objection they raise with Paul. What form are these bodies going to take? That's what they're dealing with. After a body comes from the grave, 
How's this all going to play out? They're, they're struggling to see resurrection as anything other than like a post-apocalyptic zombie scenario. That's in their minds, honestly. Most scholars think that's the way they're conceiving of it, and that's why they're bothered by it. They're not comfortable with that. Why would God want such a thing to play out? And keep in mind, in the Greek conception of the world, there's the spiritual and there's the fleshly, and they have elevated the spiritual. The goal is to get beyond the flesh and to the spirit, to attain to this other thing. Why would we want to raise this, this decomposing thing? Why would we want to go back to that? Because that's what they're thinking. This decomposed body being raised from the ground. It looks like a horror film. It looks like thriller in their minds. This is the way they're playing all of this out. And it just doesn't make a lot of sense to them. That's why they object to it. And for them, they much prefer the idea that, honestly, we still kind of prefer. Generally, the way we still talk about resurrection is how they were talking about it. They like the idea of a spirit resurrection. Bodily, physical resurrection is harder to kind of wrap our minds around. It's much easier to conceive of this life force idea, this idea of a soul or a spirit within us. That part of us that we all recognize exists, not at a scientific or medical level. This is a metaphysical sort of conversation. This is how they want to see resurrection. And you know what I'm talking about because it still happens in our culture all the time. You watch the movies, you watch cartoons, and you see it. A person is laid in the ground and the sort of cartoonish image is of this like ghoulish ghost this spirit that rises from this body that's in the ground, and it floats on up to heaven somewhere vaguely up there. That's the way it always looks, to the clouds. That's, that's where you go when you're resurrected. And honestly, that's, that's much better than like a zombie land scenario. That feels better. That makes sense to us. We can wrap our minds around that a little bit easier. And what Paul is saying is you're thinking about it all wrong. You're misunderstanding it. And he starts using all these metaphors. If you've ever read any of the letters of Paul, he does this. Don't be bothered by it. He mixes metaphors. He just stacks one metaphor on top of another, and it can kind of get confusing, right? It just all starts to run together. But Paul is trying to give you any way of seeing this, helping you see it from every different angle possible. He wants you to understand this thing rightly. And so he starts with this idea of, of planting a seed. It's a, this agrarian image. He says, when you plant a seed, it doesn't look like a tomato. It doesn't look like a strawberry. It doesn't look like a grapevine. It looks nothing like that. It's a little disheartening, honestly, because you don't know what's going to come of it. The process of sowing a seed is, is difficult for that reason. It doesn't look like what you want it to yet, right? But eventually, it will take on that form, he's saying. It will take on this whole new transformed shape. But even when it takes on that transformed shape, Paul is saying, it is still what it always has been. The same DNA is present. Some shred of that original seed is still present in the life of this new thing that has been birthed from it, right? It's still the same, yet it is completely different than what you sowed into the ground, right? It's the same, yet it's completely different. See what he's doing with resurrection. The resurrection body, the experience of Jesus is this. He's the same, but he is completely different when the disciples encounter him. And the same is true for us, right? Then he starts talking about heavenly bodies. He's talking about constellations and planets and stars and all of this. 
kind of gets a little strange. Again, th- these analogies he's, he's making. In verse 40, he, he says there are, there are earthly bodies and there are heavenly bodies. It's a big jump that he's making. But again, he's trying to give you any kind of angle possible so that you can make sense of this, right? Think of humanity as you have always encountered it. A man takes on one particular kind of form, one particular kind of shape. But he says, consider the heavenly body. Consider the stars. It's like he's saying, consider, consider Orion. Man, as you know, it takes one particular kind of shape. And here is man in the heavens. It's constellation. Man, but in a completely different kind of form. Same shape, yet in a far more glorious form. This is what he's saying. Now, does that mean we all become constellations? Is that what resurrection looks like? No, Paul's not saying that. Again, he's he's stacking stuff up here. This is not new age. This is not some like twist on Mormonism. Paul is doing something completely unique. And it was very hard in the ancient world for them to make sense of it. The conversation on resurrection was not an ordinary one. They didn't do a lot of talking about this. But he's saying resurrection will look much the same way. These bodies that we have, they'll be the same they will be utterly and completely different, right? Glorious in a way we have never experienced, Paul is trying to articulate. There's this move he's making from the perishable to the imperishable, right? The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable, he says. We have to move from this natural and decaying existence that we have known into this eternal and enduring reality of resurrection, right? That's what he's trying to get us to. All we have ever known from the moment we were born is decay. Everything we've ever laid our hands on is eventually going to decay. We ourselves are decaying. I hit 35 this year, and I always thought the old people were lying to me. Like, legitimately, I have never been so sore in my life. And it's not like I'm doing anything. I'm talking about just waking up in the morning. Somehow, like, I'm decaying. It's happening, right? Like, we realize this. Over the years, new things begin to happen. You're like, I can't make sense of this. That's all we have ever known. And he says, we have to move from this, this this decaying sort of reality of our existence to this enduring and eternal reality of resurrection. That's what's coming. But everything he's saying is building us to Jesus. And he he portrays Jesus as the, the last Adam. We know the first Adam, obviously, right? We are well acquainted with the image of the first Adam. We have shared in the brokenness of humanity, the frailty of humanity that comes from that first Adam. But he says Jesus is the last Adam. And just as we have shared in the image of the first Adam, the earthly man, we will share in the image of the last Adam, the heavenly Adam. Man, He says we're moving toward that. As sure as we have known brokenness, we will know glory, he's saying, right? That's what's coming. We will share in this glorious image. And this is important because if that's true, it kind of eradicates the idea that we just become spirits after we die. We're just spirits that float up to heaven from the ground. We go somewhere vaguely up there where heaven is. You guys have seen all dogs go to heaven. Honestly, for most people, that is about as profound as their idea of heaven gets. Like, you're floating up there. And I don't mean to be insensitive, but that's what we've been fed for a very long time. And Paul is saying something else. John says something else in Revelation, right? 
It's not us floating up to heaven. It's heaven descending to us. God always comes to us. We never get to ascend to his heights. He always comes to us. This is the picture. Heaven coming to earth. If you look at New Jerusalem in Revelation, right, it's descending to earth. This is the picture he's giving us. And these bodies, this creation that God has called good, God is going to make it perfect. Not just good, perfect, as he originally intended for it to be. It's going to be the same, yet completely different. There's going to be a glory, something completely new about it. God is renewing all things. Right? This is not just about me experiencing resurrection. That he wanted to deal with. But now he's stepping into that. Right? He's, he's turning the corner, as we talked about. He's stepping into something else. The implications of resurrection for this eschaton, right? The implications of, of resurrection for eternity. And so he starts talking about this trumpet, right? And if you've read the Old Testament, if you've seen the prophets, they bring this up. The idea of the, the trumpet being blown in Zion. The trumpet always points us toward the, the day of the Lord, right? The day of God's justice. God is going to set things back in order. God is going to establish his kingdom. God is going to make things right. This is what we're waiting for, longing for. And when you hear the trumpet, you know it is coming. So when Paul makes that, that reference, that's where he's going. And let's be real. If there's anything we've got more questions about than even resurrection, it's eternity, it's this idea of, of the eschaton, what heaven will be like. And generally, when somebody asks those questions, when somebody is, is asking about these things, they're not just doing it in some hypothetical sort of way. This is deeply personal stuff. Somebody's doing this normally when they're grieving the loss of somebody they love dearly. Maybe they're, they're in a season of doubt. They're trying to, to put all this together. What do I actually believe about death? What do I actually believe about this idea of resurrection? Do I really think that's, that's real? People are wrestling with things. And what generally happens is, because that person is in such a hard place, we tend to answer those questions in an effort to comfort them. And it generally sounds nice. But it doesn't actually arise from Scripture. In an effort to comfort people, we say things that aren't actually scriptural. And you've seen it. Yeah, like, it plays out over and over again. You've seen those, those social media posts. You've been to that funeral. You've probably heard a pastor articulate this at some point. You've seen it. Like, I have sat through the funerals and, and, and tried to, like, make sense of what is coming out of this person's mouth. How any of this arises from scripture. They say things like, Heaven gained an angel today. Somebody got their wings today. Again, it sounds so nice. It sounds right out of a TV movie. I mean, it's good, right? I, I've noticed on social media, because of the level of death that we're, we're dealing with, my hometown right now is being hit really hard. And some people that are, that are dear to my hometown have died. And you see posts like, again, people just trying to comfort themselves and comfort others. And they say something really nice, something really sentimental. And then hashtag fly high. All this flying imagery, angel imagery, right? Somewhere along the way, that became normal. I heard during the Olympics, maybe you heard it too, it was one of the, the U.S. beach volleyball players. She's just won a gold medal, 
and they're talking about her mother. And she talks about how much her mother means to her and how sometimes when she's playing, she talks to her mother who died when she was younger. She even says, sometimes when, when a match gets really hard, sometimes I'll, I'll even ask mom for help. And I'm thinking, that sounds nice. That's deeply comforting, this idea of a connection with somebody you've lost, right? You can't take lightly. I can't just hate on that and make fun of that simultaneously. Where does that come from? I, the only thing I can maybe connect it to is the Catholic notion of maybe like praying to the saints. That's the only kind of connection I can make. Scripturally, it is hard to make sense of some of the things that we have believed and comforted ourselves with. It sounds nice, but whatever comfort you might derive from something like that, the problem is, it's nowhere near as comforting as the thing Paul is trying to articulate. There is a far deeper comfort that Scripture is offering us for eternity, for, for what all of this is going to look like. And yet we have always insisted on making our dying loved ones angels. It, it, it's not really a big jump for us because like, if, if your spirit's floating up to heaven, you know, I guess we're going to fly and stuff too, right? We're going to get wings and stuff too. It, it all just makes sense, and culturally we always go to that. But it's a misunderstanding of resurrection. That's what Paul wants to trace it back to. All of this comes back to resurrection. And if you understand resurrection rea reality, right, if you get it, then it ties all of this other stuff together. That's what he wants you to see. If you understand resurrection, you will understand eternity and heaven and the coming kingdom of God far, far better. And if you're the person who's, who's like sitting here kind of going, what? Some of this stuff doesn't sound all that far off from the way I have conceived of heaven. I don't know what to say about it. And honestly, I could speak in your defense. Scripture doesn't have a lot to say in terms of like the practical ins and outs. It doesn't speak like forensically about heaven. It doesn't do that. But if you're asking the question, like, like so many people, funerals, you hear, like, are, are we going to know one another? Is eternity going to look like that? When you've just lost somebody you love, it's like, is this relationship gone forever? Or will I have it again? Will we share it again? Right? People ask those sorts of questions. And it's like Paul is saying, you can't ask that question until you ask the question about resurrection. And if you believe this about Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection, then absolutely relationship is going to be the same as we have known, right? Just like the disciples recognize Jesus. He's the same. They walk with him. They eat with him. They talk scripture with him. All of this stuff is happening, yet Jesus can just like appear and be gone. He's the same, yet he is completely and utterly different. They recognize it. We will absolutely recognize community. The church will exist but not as, as spirits floating past each other in the clouds. Like we'll know each other as God intended for us to know each other, as brothers and sisters living in communion as he intended for us from the start. What is heaven actually like? Like what is the material of heaven? What is this? Like we've made it into a place, again, that exists somewhere up there, out there. It's this metaphysical sort of conversation. And the implication of resurrection, Paul is saying, this is going to be a lot like earth going to be a lot like what you've known, yet completely different. The two are going to be bound together, heaven and earth. They're not going to exist as two separate realms or dimensions. They're being drawn together as God originally intended for them to be. 
all of this is happening. Uh, N.T. Wright says it better than I, I can say it, uh, and I think it's important. He was giving a lecture at, at Fuller Seminary, I think, and this is what he says. He says, the resurrection of Jesus forms the model as well as the means for the future renewal of all creation. Resurrection forms the model as well as the means for the future renewal of all creation, right? Because that's where Paul is going, the future renewal of all creation. So he begins by saying it's the model. At the simplest level, what he's getting at is what Jesus has experienced in Easter, what God has done for Jesus in Easter, he is soon going to do for all of creation. Resurrection is not a thing limited to Jesus' experience or even our experience as individuals, but for all of creation, right? It becomes the model. The same way we understand what's happening to Jesus, the same way we understand what's going to happen to us in our experience of resurrection, he's saying eventually we will see in creation. This is the reality of new creation. Just as our bodies will be the same, yet utterly different, so creation will be the same, but in far more glorious form. So if you're imagining heaven as this unfamiliar realm, wispy clouds and whatever else, again, a lot of times we get, we get caught up in, in like John's imagery of streets of gold and all of this is going to be all of this. John's being metaphorical. He wants you to see it's going to be the same, but it's going to be in a far more glorious form. As humans, we talked about this last week, we will become more fully human. We're not going to become something else. We're going to become human in the way that God intended for us to be. You and I have existed for a very long time as almost subhuman, as less than what God intended for us. And we will become more fully and completely human as he intended for us to be. That's what's going to happen. Creation, the same. Creation will become more fully what God intended for it to be. This is what he's getting at. If you've ever read Romans 8, you've seen Paul do this. Romans 8 is one of our favorites, but there's like this, this one portion that can get a little kind of confusing. He says, all creation groans, waiting in eager expectation for the revealing of the children of God. We know that experience. We know what it is to groan, to long for the final consummation of what God has promised, right? To long for the kingdom. We know what it is, especially in those moments of grief or doubt. We long for that. But he says, all of creation is groaning. All of creation is longing for this thing, an eager expectation. And this is what he's getting at. He's trying to help us see this. Creation longs for this glory. Creation longs for this renewal. And the two are tied together. The revealing of the children of God, us experiencing resurrection and becoming new, is tied to creation itself becoming new. They're tied together. Our resurrection, our glory, is tied to creation being made new, becoming glorious, right? He's saying resurrection, as we understand it in the life of Jesus, is the model for all of that happening in eternity in new creation. This is what he's saying. You can't miss resurrection. You can't forget it. You can't make too little of it, or too much of it, I should say. You can't make too much of resurrection. But he also says, it's the means. It's not just the model for it. It's the means, right? Jesus' resurrection sets everything in motion, 
When Jesus comes from the grave, the defeat of death by Jesus sets in motion the future redemption of all things. Everything, nothing will be left untouched by resurrection is, is what Paul is trying to get at. New creation can't happen apart from resurrection. It can't. If resurrection, like Paul was dealing with in that first half of the passage, if resurrection is not real and true, if Jesus is not truly raised, then everything really is wasting away and will come to a hopeless end. Eventually, the earth will just wear out. And the only hope we have is that God will remove us from it. What Paul is saying is something different. If it's real, if we actually believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then that resurrection pervades everything. Nothing is excluded from that resurrection. It will touch everything. If it's real, then that means somehow the means through which God is going to do all of this is resurrection. All of God's promises are fulfilled through this one means, the resurrection. The kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. The means is this defeat of death. Paul keeps pressing it. He's pushing us on it. But what I love about Paul is he doesn't ever just want to talk about the finer points of theology. He doesn't want to use like big words like eschatology. If you guys do this, like, let, if you guys will drop maybe a word like inaugurated eschatology after church, Jonathan will give you a dollar, I promise. But Paul wants to ground it in something other than big words, right? He wants to ground it in our, our everyday lives. He wants you not just to know it at some factual level, at some mental level. He wants you to experience the very real comfort, the re very real peace that comes from it. He wants to speak to these sort of practical matters. That's what he wants to do because he knows we have these questions. And so he says right there at the end, you, you probably caught it in the last verse, there's this turn. He says, therefore, stand firm. All of this means you can stand firm. He says, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. And that is something we all deeply need to hear sometimes. Because it can feel like everything's just wasting away. And that everything we've ever done with our hands just seems to be unraveling. And he says, if this thing is real, then nothing you are doing is wasted. If this thing is real, then whatever you may be suffering through, it will not be wasted. God will redeem it. God is making everything new. Whatever you lose, it's not really lost. God is renewing all things. Last week we said, what, what you do with your body actually matters. It's important. How we decide to live our lives has everything to do with what we believe about resurrection. What I do with my body, my physicality, the things I choose to do with my hands and set my eyes upon and speak, all of this, it matters, right? Paul says the things you choose to give yourself as a follower of Jesus, give yourself to as a follower of Jesus, it all matters, but here's the thing, most of the time when we talk about this stuff, 
Most of our conversations about eternity, about heaven, about the eschaton, it's, it's like prognostication. We're just trying to predict what it's going to look like. We're trying to time it all out and figure out when it's going to happen. That's what people are generally doing when they talk about it. But if we have the conversation right, forgetting what Paul is saying, it will always bring us back to what are you doing right now? It'll always bring you back to the present. It will always bring you back to where you're at right now, what you're doing. Most of the time, end times conversations are not practical, but they ought to bring us back to this. Labor as one who knows you are not laboring in vain. What you're doing actually matters for eternity. Paul is, is talking about new creation in the sense that a, a world that is free of decay. We have only known decay. A world that functions, he's envisioning, without loss and death. It's different. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around all of this. Meaning a world where, where sickness can't flourish, where viruses don't mutate. A world where even our relationships don't deteriorate and break down. A world where our conflicts don't lead to, to needless wars. A creation in which all of our, our, our weapons of war all our swords are being beaten into plowshares, as Isaiah says. This is what he's conceiving of. It will be the same, right? But it will be completely different, far more glorious. It's everything we've ever wanted. It's the thing our heart and our soul has longed for. And God is going to bring it about. We all long for it. But what we see happening in the church and within our culture over and over again is that we're trying to get there, that, for that, that thing that we long for, that all creation is longing for. We're trying to arrive there through some other avenue. Like we will tie ourselves, hitch our wagon to so many different things, so many different ideas, so many different movements. We're trying to get there any way possible. It happens over and over again. It's happening right now. Everybody's longing for it. They don't know how to put that language on it. They wouldn't call it new creation but people are constantly thinking about reform. Conservatives think the answer is in the past. If we, could, if we could get back to that, we lost something somewhere along the way. And we've got to get back to there. We need to get back to there. And if we can get back to there, then life could be good again. Society could flourish again. On the other end of the spectrum, the progressive, the liberal, because the answer is here and now, well, we got to fix the past. That's how the present can be better. That's how this world can be better. We've got to fix what happened in the past. We've got to make it right. So we've got to go back and we've got to systematically deal with all of those things. And Paul is talking about something else entirely. You cannot arrive at new creation. You cannot arrive at the thing you are longing for, the depth of your being, through any other means than resurrection. Something has to die. God will have to raise it up. And as the church, we believe the answer is not in fixing the past or trying to make the present into some sort of utopia. Both ends of the spectrum are failing 
in this little effort. The church chooses to orient itself toward eternity. The church uses, uses this other sort of language altogether. New creation. Paul says we have yet to see creation as God really intended for it to be. Creation as we know it, our existence as we know it, is just a seed, Paul is saying, of what God intended for it to be. We've yet to see creation and humanity in full bloom. And God is doing it. And what you're doing here and now is part of it. It's not in vain. It's not wasted. It doesn't seem like it. It seems completely disconnected, just like the seed looks nothing like its final product. Paul is saying, your labor is not in vain. It's never wasted. So as the, the band comes and we move toward the table and we bear testimony to this reality, Paul says, every time we come to this table, we proclaim the, door, the Lord's death until he comes. This is the thing we're orienting our lives around, the fulfillment of the promises of God through this model, no other but resurrection. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're aligning our lives with, giving ourselves to completely. And so we want to invite you guys in these moments. They're going to play a song, come up, grab a cup, tear off a piece of bread, and they're going to play, and we're going to worship together, and, and then I'll come back and, and lead us through all of this. Father, we just ask that you would speak among us. I pray we would find a deep comfort, not just in what sounds nice to us or is easy to wrap our minds around, but we would find real comfort in the resurrection of Jesus. A deep and abiding kind of peace that we would know as, as those who feel like we're, we're laboring in vain sometimes, like nothing ever seems to change, like the world just continues to kind of careen off of this cliff toward destruction, God. We pray that we would be a people who orient ourselves around this hope of new creation. And help us to build our lives on that to not place our hope in any other thing, any other avenue, any other model, any other means, but just this one thing. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.